0: The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The
1: Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of time. Its pages burn with
0: the truth eternal and they glow with the lights of life. Bible... God's inerrant infallible word our holy bible stands as an eternal lighthouse in a decaying world this worldwide independent radio ministry outreach of the bible stands is dedicated to the proclaiming of the great truths of scripture for the glory of our lord jesus christ and now here is our bible expositor wayne carver
1: it's it's good to greet you once again in the name of our lord and savior jesus the christ Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. Today I'd like to begin a study of the triune nature of God. This is a study that I call Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's open with a most intriguing verse of Scripture. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." These words are found in the 20th verse of the first chapter of the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Romans. According to this rather remarkable verse of Scripture, there is both a clear witness to and a picture of the God of creation in the creation itself. Every man, woman, and child, living, or who has ever lived, or who ever will live, has been, is, or will be, brought face to face with the testimony of creation itself, which is a powerful witness to the nature of the God who created and formed it. So every human being is devoid of excuse or defense. Whether or not an individual has ever seen or read God's revelation of himself as contained in his word, the Holy Scriptures, that one cannot escape a confrontation with the true and living God. This verse declares that every one of us are without excuse if we ignore the revelation of God in the creation. Now with this introduction, I'd like to bring up one of the basic, cardinal, fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. This doctrine is often called the doctrine of the Trinity. There's perhaps no teaching of the scriptures that's harder for the unbeliever to accept than this particular doctrine. It's been a stumbling block for millions down through the centuries, and indeed many cultic pseudo-Christian religions vigorously deny this doctrine. These cults thrive on their ability to present a God that can be visualized and represented in terms that men can understand. They boldly proclaim the Unitarian idea of God, and in so doing, they deny that Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. One of the earliest controversies within the Christian faith was centered around the so-called doctrine of the Trinity, but out of this controversy at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD came the formal orthodox statement of the triunity of God, which clearly reflects the teaching of the Scriptures. The doctrine of the Trinity is a doctrine that is accepted by all fundamental Bible-believing Christians of today. But although all born-again Bible-believing Christians do accept the doctrine, there are many who do not really understand the scriptural basis of this doctrine. They, therefore, are sometimes weak in understanding the teaching of it in God's revelation. Now the word trinity is not found in the Bible. Actually, it's not a very good word to describe the concept of God with which it's associated anyway. To really des- it really describes only half of the teaching that it's supposed to convey. And we have to be exceptionally careful in bringing out the triune nature of God because the unity, that is the oneness of God must be just as carefully emphasized as the trinity, that is the threeness. There must be no imbalance. So careful theologians today shun the use of the word trinity and prefer to use a word like triunity. One of the strongest declarations of the oneness of God found anywhere in the Bible is in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. This verse may be translated in various ways. In the King James Version, it is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The word translated Lord is the sacred tetragrammaton, Yahweh, which we often pronounce Jehovah. So the verse could be translated, Jehovah our God is one Jehovah, or Jehovah is our God, Jehovah alone. But no matter how it's translated, it tells us positively that there is but one God. It's an absolute declaration of monotheism, the concept of only one deity, one God. And this is not an isolated scripture. Previously, in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 35, Moses, the inspired author of this book, had declared, Unto thee it was showed, that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God, there is none else beside him. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 39, Moses, directly quoting the words of God, writes, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal. "'Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand.'" And Moses is, of course, not alone among the Old Testament prophets in declaring the oneness of God. Isaiah, in chapter 45 and verse 14, quotes the words of God with regard to the Sabaeans. "'They shall come after thee, in chains they shall come over, and they shall fall down unto thee. They shall make supplication unto thee, saying, "'Surely God is in thee, and there is none else. There is no God.'" And in chapter 46 and verse 9, Isaiah, still quoting the words of God, writes, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. And it's not the Old Testament alone that declares the oneness of God. The New Testament is equally clear and equally emphatic in such passages as 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4-6. through 6. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him." The Apostle Paul also declares in Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 3 through 6, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And James, in chapter 2 and verse 19, declares, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. All of these passages are emphatic in their statement that there is but one God. And let me emphasize that what is often referred to as the doctrine of the Trinity does not imply in any way that there are three gods. God is a unity. He is single and unique. And there is no other god. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. This passage of scripture from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14 brings clearly before us the fact that three persons are associated with the biblical revelation of God. And to each person, this verse of Scripture ascribes a specific personal attribute, showing that a personal concept is in the mind of the author. The evidence that the triune nature of God is a genuine teaching of Scripture is overwhelming. Let's spend a few moments reviewing the New Testament teaching of the triunity of God. First, God the Father is recognized as God. Now, of course, this point is seldom disputed, but to make our evidence complete, let's look at two passages that clearly bring out this point. In John chapter 6 and verse 27 we read labor not for the meat which perisheth but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life which the Son of Man shall give unto you for him hath God the Father sealed and the Apostle Peter in 1st Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 declares that Christians are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father now Jesus Christ is also recognized as God This point is denied by all those who hold a Unitarian view of God and especially by those cults who operate under the name of Christianity yet vigorously oppose most cardinal points of New Testament doctrine. Yet the scriptural evidence for the deity of Christ is overwhelming. Doubting Thomas recognized the Lord Jesus Christ as God in John chapter 20 and verse 28 where he cried out, My Lord and my God. The Lord himself confirmed the correctness of Thomas' view in the next verse when he replied, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. The Lord Jesus Christ himself claimed some of the attributes that only God has. Scripture shows him to be omniscient or all-knowing in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 4. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? He claims to be omnipotent, all-powerful, in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And two verses later, in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 20, He claims to be omnipresent, everywhere present. And, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ also did things that only God can do, such as forgive sins. In the story of the healing of the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, we find the Lord saying in verse 5, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Those standing by recognized that this was a function reserved only for God when they said, Why does this man speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Further, the New Testament recognizes the Holy Spirit as God. He is definitely spoken of as God in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost, and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Here it said that lying to the Holy Spirit is lying unto God. We also find that numerous New Testament scriptural passages ascribe to the Holy Spirit the various attributes of God. So the Bible does definitely teach that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all God. But the Bible also is just as emphatic that there is not three gods, but one God. God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I see that my time is almost gone. We'll continue our study of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, on the next broadcast. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to be able to come into your home or your car or your place of business with another message from God's Word. We're continuing our study of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's look at the words of the Lord's Great Commission to His disciples. Go ye therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Perhaps the doctrine of the triunity of God is better presented in this passage than in any other scripture in the Bible. This verse properly balances both aspects of the concept. Both the unity of God and the Trinity of God are distinctly revealed. All three persons are mentioned, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There can be no doubt about the threeness aspect of the Godhead. The instruction reads, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. However, the unity aspect is also strongly emphasized since the singular word name is used rather than the plural word names. The construction in the original language is clear and concise. We are to baptize believers in the name, singular, of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The name refers clearly to the one God, but the three persons are mentioned separately showing that God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have both the unity and the Trinity of the triune God brought clearly to the front in this one verse. The New Testament evidence for the Trinitarian nature of the one true and living God is quite clear and explicit. This cannot be denied by anyone who is thoroughly familiar with the New Testament scriptures. But the question is often asked, is there any similar evidence in the Old Testament? In answer to this, let me say that the Old Testament revelation of the triune nature of God is a great deal more subtle than that of the New Testament, but nevertheless, it is definitely there. Although the Old Testament does not emphasize the teaching of the Trinitarian nature of God, it does definitely and undoubtedly allow and prepare for the New Testament revelation of it. The opening chapter of the book of Genesis clearly prepares the reader for the subsequent revelation of the Trinitarian nature of God by the use of the plural word for God, Elohim, and the plural personal pronoun, us, in reference to God. The opening verse of the Bible reads, In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Let me point out that Hebrew names, or rather Hebrew nouns, are capable of expressing a singular, a dual, and a plural. The singular indicates one, the dual indicates two, and the plural indicates three or more. The word Elohim is a plural, and it indicates three or more, but it takes a singular article and a singular verb. So in the structure and usage of this very word, we have a subtle hint to the triune nature of the God of creation. Now further on in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, we find these words, And Elohim said, Let us make man in our image. Both the us and the our are in plural form, strongly hinting of a plurality of persons in the singular Godhead. By the way, the teaching that this is a conversation between a Unitarian God and the angels of heaven has to be false. Those concerned in this council are all involved in the work of creation, and nowhere does Scripture allow for angels to have participated in the creative works of God. Angels themselves are created beings, and Scripture strongly hints that they were created on the second day of God's creation period. However, they themselves did not create nor did God consult with them before he created man in his own image. As a further subtle revelation of the doctrine of the triune nature of God, we find the, that the angel of Jehovah is both recognized as God, yet is clearly distinct from God, a condition that, again, can only exist through the triune nature of God. Let's look at the words of Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 and 16. And the angel of Jehovah called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith Jehovah, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son. This passage distinctly indicates that two co-equal persons exist in the nature of God. In the great messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, the Messiah, the coming anointed one of Israel, is called the mighty God. Also Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, the passage that prophesies Bethlehem as the place of our Lord's birth, ascribes eternal pre-existence to the one who is to be born there. Let's look at the prophetic words of Isaiah as they're found in Isaiah chapter 48 verses 16 and 17. Come ye near unto me, hear ye this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from the time that it was, there am I. And now the Lord God and his Spirit hath sent me. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord thy God, which teacheth thee to profit, which leadeth thee by the way that thou shouldest go. The Old Testament revelation of the triune nature of God provided by this passage cannot be considered as subtle. This passage is the clearest revelation of the triune nature of God that is contained anywhere in the Old Testament Scriptures. Clearly, the prophet Isaiah is recording the words of God when he writes, And now the Lord God, that is, Jehovah God, and His Spirit hath sent me. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. This statement only makes sense when we realize that the second person of the Godhead, God the Son, is speaking of the time of his incarnation. And he tells us, And now the Lord God, God the Father, and his Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, hath sent me, God the Son. All three persons of the triune God are clearly present in this statement. So when we look at the scriptural evidence as contained in both the New and Old Testaments, we're forced to conclude that there is one and only one God. Yet the one true God exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The well-known theologian, William Warfield, has formalized the scriptural doctrine of the triunity of God in a definition. It is the doctrine that there is only one God But in the unity of the Godhead, there are three eternal and co-equal persons, the same in substance, but distinct in subsistence. Now the word subsistence means being or existence. So Warfield's definition calls attention to the fact that the three persons of the Godhead, although distinct, are exactly alike in substance, that is, in their makeup or attributes. It's recognized that the word person is really not a good word to use because it seems to indicate separate individuals in the Godhead, which is definitely not the teaching of Scripture. But there is no better word in the English language to describe the true relationship, so we're stuck with that inadequate word. Is it possible to illustrate the doctrine of the triunity of God? No, it's not possible to illustrate the doctrine of the triunity of God perfectly, or perhaps not even very well. We are finite creatures with finite minds. Our trying to conjure up a picture of infinite things is something like an ant looking up at the Empire State Building and trying to picture the detailed intricacy of that structure in his mind. But let's not forget that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. This verse seems to tell us that the creation itself reflects a picture of the Creator. We would expect, then, that the created universe would provide the best illustration of the triune nature of God. And when we look closely, we find that this is indeed the case. Since the Scripture tells us that the creation has been designed to reveal the nature of the Creator, and since Scripture also clearly tells us that the Creator is a triune being, then we must accept the fact that the creation in some fashion does reflect a picture of the Trinity. Not only must Jesus Christ himself be seen in the creation, but also God the Father and God the Holy Spirit must be seen there too. Again, the inspired Apostle Paul has told us that not the fact of God, but also the nature of God are clearly understood by the things that are made. The fact that God is one should be recognized from the evidence that confronts us in that the creation is one. The very name we use to designate God's creation bears testimony to the fact that we recognize it as a unity. We call God's creation a universe, not a multiverse Modern science has searched for and has recognized the existence of universal laws and unifying principles. But in its unity, the creation is still recognized as a thing of great variety and diversity. The creation is unified, yet it is actually formed by the interplay of three separate and distinguishable entities. Since the God of creation is to be seen reflected in his creation, should not this lead us to think of God as a unity in Trinity? Modern science has recognized that our universe can be accurately described as a space-time-matter continuum. That is, the universe is formed and functions by the interplay of three and only three basic entities, space, time, and matter, or energy. Each of these entities are separate and distinguishable one from another. Yet they are interrelated, and the universe only stands by the existence of all three. Take away one, and we have nothing. Our universe is a unity in Trinity. I see that my time is gone for today. We'll continue the study of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on the next broadcast. It's so good to greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're involved in a study of the triune nature of God. I call this study Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's first consider the opening verses of the 19th Psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it. And there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Modern science has recognized that our universe can be accurately described as a space-time-matter continuum. That is, the universe is formed and functions by the interplay of three and only three basic entities, space, time, and matter, or energy. Each of these entities are quite different one from another, yet they are interrelated, and the universe only stands by the existence of all three. Take one away and we have nothing. Our universe is most definitely a unity in trinity. Everything that happens in our universe, every event, and that includes every type of physical and biological process, takes place by the existence of matter, that is, energy, in space and through time. We have to remember that matter is just a special form of energy, so really energy is the more basic term our universe is a relativistic union of energy space and time although each of these three entities are basically different in their outward manifestations in the continuum which is our universe they are so intertwined that they are essentially indistinguishable one from another our one universe which manifests itself to us in three conceptual forms each of which is equally universal should immediately direct our attention to the scriptural revelation of the nature of the one triune God of creation. Scripture clearly tells us that there is one God, yet He is manifest in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three persons are each equally God, but they are totally and ultimately inseparable. The revealed interrelationships among the three persons of the Godhead are distinctly similar to the interrelationships among the three entities of the physical universe. Just as God the Son manifests and embodies God the Father, the entity of matter manifests and embodies intangible space in a form that is discernible to the senses. Although we realize that space is everywhere, it is in itself quite invisible and totally intangible to the senses but although space may seem quite unreal nevertheless physical phenomena of all kinds are constantly and universally taking place in space and thus the entity of space does manifest its existence and proves beyond doubt that it is quite real matter and all forms of energy when observed at the proper level are found to be in reality essentially nothing but space in themselves yet matter and energy are also quite real so in a very real sense the interrelationship of the Father and the Son is seen pictured in the interrelationship of space and matter likewise we'll find that the relationship of time to space and matter pictures the relationship of God the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son. The third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. He also is quite invisible and He is everywhere present. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is the interpretation and application of the work of God the Father and God the Son. Similarly, time is the universal entity within which the significance of space and matter must be interpreted, applied, and understood. Time itself has no meaning except in terms of the entity matter or energy as it manifests itself within the the entity of space. But also, matter and space are quite inconceivable except in terms of time. Matter can only be manifest within individual segments of time. Paul writes for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead the physical universe as we know it definitely is most uniquely analogous to what scripture reveals about the triune nature of the creator the tripartite continuum of space and matter and time each distinct within itself yet each inseparably interrelated to the other two And each occupying the whole of the universe is remarkably and uniquely parallel in character to what God's written word reveals about the nature of God himself. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each distinct, yet each inseparably identified with the other two. And each member of the Trinity is equally and eternally God. But the analogy does not end with this. Each of the three entities of the physical universe is itself a triunity. Our physical universe is actually a trinity of trinities. I'd like to consider space and matter and time, each in turn. The entity of space is definitely a trinity, and even the least technically inclined of us should have no difficulty understanding this. Space is three-dimensional. And by its three-dimensional nature, it gives us one of the clearest illustrations of the interrelationships of the three persons of the Godhead that we have. We speak of lines and planes, that is, one and two-dimensional figures. Yet in reality, these are only mental concepts, and they do not exist in nature. We can conceive of a line, a one-dimensional figure, but a line cannot be drawn without some thickness in the other two dimensions. Similarly, we can conceive of the idea of a plane, but a plane cannot actually exist without some thickness in the third dimension So for anything to exist in nature, it must have three dimensions Space is three-dimensional and space must be occupied in three dimensions Each of the dimensions are identical in essence The differences are only in subsistence that is in the interrelationships All three dimensions occupy all of space, and in this, space is remarkably analogous to the three persons of the Godhead. I believe that the phenomenon of three-dimensional space is one of the best pictures that God has given us of his Trinitarian existence. Let's picture the Godhead as a unit volume of space. That is, let's consider a cubic volume of space that has dimensions of one unit in length, one unit in width, And one unit in depth now each of these three dimensions viewed alone are exactly the same and each if we select our units large enough fills all of space in other words we could say that each of our three dimensions are co-equal in power and glory and each are everywhere present all three persons of the Godhead Father Son and Holy Spirit are also co-equal in power and glory and all three are everywhere present when viewed alone, each person is fully God, co-equal and co-eternal. The differences in our three dimensions comes about by their relationships one to another. Each of our three dimensions are orthogonally related. That is, each forms a 90-degree angle with both of the other two. Similarly, the differences between the persons of the Godhead is in their ministries, in their interrelationships one to another. Just as our unit cube of space has three different, yet identical and co-equal dimensions, so the Godhead is formed of three persons, each co-equal and co-eternal. We can note that all three dimensions are absolutely necessary to the existence of our cube of space. Take one dimension away and our cube of space no longer exists. Similarly, all three persons of the Godhead are absolutely necessary for the existence of God. The three persons are inseparable. The unit cube of space is analogous to the unity of God. There is one and only one true and living God. But the three dimensions of our cube of space are also analogous to the three persons of the Godhead. Thus we have within our cube of space also an analogy of the Trinitarian nature of God. Now, let's look at the mathematics of the Trinity. Many unbelievers look at the Trinitarian mathematical concept something like this. God the Father is one, God the Son is one, and God the Holy Spirit is one. Therefore, we have one plus one plus one equals three. And they come to the conclusion that the Bible extends a concept of three gods. But the mathematics of the Trinity is not one plus one plus one equals three. The correct mathematics of the Trinity can be seen from our unit cube of space. It has a length of one, a width of one, and a depth of one. But the three dimensions are orthogonal, and they cannot be arithmetically summed. They can only be combined as a product. The mathematics of the cube is 1 times 1 times 1 equals 1. And that is the mathematics of the Trinity also. One person times one person times one person equals one God. Scripture also seems to use the cube to picture the triune nature of the Godhead, and we'll consider this as we continue on our next broadcast. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. For the past several broadcasts, I've been speaking on the subject Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a study of the triune nature of God. Let's turn to a passage from the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth foursquare, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. As we look at this description of the Holy City, the New Jerusalem, in Revelation chapter 21 verses 15 and 16, we're reminded once again that Scripture always describes the place in which God chooses to make His presence known among men as having the dimensions of a perfect cube. The Holy of Holies of the Tabernacle of Moses was a perfect cube. The Holy of Holies of the Temple of Solomon and of the later rebuilt Temple of of Zerubbabel were both perfect cubes. And the enlarged temple of Herod that stood in the day of our Lord's earthly ministry also had a holy of holies that was constructed as a perfect cube. The new Jerusalem of the eternal state is the dwelling place of God as well as the dwelling place of redeemed men, and, as we might expect, it also is a perfect cube. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. We've been considering the picture of the triune God that, according to Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, is to be found in the creation itself. And we've found that indeed, the creation, our universe, is a trinity in unity. Our universe is a unified whole. It is one, yet modern science recognizes that the universe actually exists by the interplay of three diverse and equally universal entities, space, matter, or energy, and time. Therefore, in a very real way, the creation is a tri-unity, a three-in-one and a one-in-three. And this, of course, is exactly the way that God's Word presents the truth of the tri-unity of God Himself. God is three-in-one and one-in-three. But, as I have previously pointed out, the analogy does not stop there. Each of the three entities of our physical universe are themselves tri-unities space is a triunity. matter or energy is a tri-unity and time is a tri-unity we've already considered the triune nature of space space is three-dimensional space can only exist as a volume that's defined by length width and depth each of these three dimensions are precisely the same in substance and each are universal that is each dimension fills all of space but the three dimensions are orthogonally related to one another. That is, each dimension forms a 90 degree angle with each of the other two. So we could say that although the three dimensions are are alike in essence, they are different in their ministries and therefore in their manifestations. And this is exactly what the Bible teaches us about the three persons of the Godhead. On the last broadcast I illustrated the nature The triune nature of God by the example of a unit volume of space a unit volume of space has a length of one unit a width of one unit and a depth of one unit therefore its volume is one cubic unit it's impossible to arithmetically sum the three dimensions because they are orthogonally oriented we cannot say 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3 but we can say 1 times 1 times 1 equals 1 by taking the product of the three dimensions we have the volume of the cube the unit cube of space is analogous to the triune nature of the God of creation he is one God unified and inseparable but he also exists eternally in three persons which are analogous to the three dimensions of our cube and the mathematics of the Trinity if you'll permit me to use that expression is not One person plus one person plus one person equals three gods, but it is one person times one person times one person equals one God. Scripture draws an analogy to God in terms of the three dimensions of space. I think that this is why the places of habitation in which God chooses to place His special presence, that is, His Shekinah glory, are always perfect cubes in design the volume of space inside pictures the one true and living God but the three precisely equal dimensions that form this perfect cube picture the three persons father son and Holy Spirit that in their inseparable relationship form the Godhead again the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and of the temple were all perfect cubes And of the New Jerusalem, the special dwelling place of God for all eternity, Scripture says, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. Let's dwell just a little longer on this concept of three-dimensional space as it pictures the triune nature of God before we move on to our consideration of the Trinitarian nature of matter, or energy, and time. When we consider space, we realize that each of the three dimensions is infinite in extent, and each occupies the whole of space although it's possible to conceive of the one-dimensional figure that we call a line even if the one dimension were infinite in itself it's really impossible for us to picture such a thing in our minds or to illustrate to others without the use of a second dimension if we try to draw a line then it's necessary for us to provide some width to the line in order to make it visible to the eye and of course, when the second dimension is provided, our figure is no longer a line, but rather a plane. So the existence of one dimension can only be illustrated by a figure constructed in two dimensions. In other words, we could say that the second dimension must be present in order for the first dimension to be revealed. The reality of the dimension that we might label linked can only be demonstrated by the simultaneous presence of width. But when both length and width are present, then the visualization of the physical truth of the existence of either or both dimensions is quite possible. The technique of two-dimensional representation of all physical reality is quite widely used. In fact, it's the best and most common method we have for representing all physical things. Pictures of real things, whether they're drawings, paintings, or photographs, are representations of three-dimensional things in two dimensions. Construction plans, blueprints, are two-dimensional representations of three-dimensional realities we actually find it easier to visualize things in two dimensions than in three dimensions we could say that the two-dimensional representation is both necessary and sufficient for the revelation of both the reality of one dimension and the interrelationships of three dimensions and here we have a very clear analogy to the triune nature of god the reality of the nature of the one God eternally existing in three persons is brought out in, very, in a very vivid way in this analogy. The one-dimensional line is analogous to God the Eternal Father, and the third dimension, depth, is analogous to God the Holy Spirit. The reality of both God the Father and God the Holy Spirit is demonstrated and represented visibly by the presence of the incarnate Word, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead. So the second dimension of space, the dimension we might call width, is analogous to God the Son. But remember, a two-dimensional figure, a plane in itself, also does not represent total physical reality. We can visualize a plane, but we can live in our universe only by the existence of the third dimension depth. Analogously, we can only experience the real presence of God by the existence of the Holy Spirit so there is a one-to-one correspondence between the dimensions of space and the persons of the godhead the real universe is a space universe of three dimensions no more and no less the existence of the length dimension can only be manifest in terms of the width dimension and can only be experienced in terms of the depth dimension all of space is a unity it's one yet it can only be visualized in terms of two of its dimensions and it can only be occupied in all three of its dimensions Exactly analogous to this, God the Father can only be seen in God the Son, and he can only be known in God the Holy Spirit. Space, one of the three entities of the Trinity that is our universe, is a Trinity within itself. And the three entities of this lesser Trinity are also analogous to the persons of the Godhead. I think that all of us have realized, perhaps subconsciously, that time is of a tripartite nature. By the very form of the language we use, we constantly classify time into its three parts. Time consists of future time, present time, and past time. Each of these classifications of time is quite distinct in meaning, yet each encompasses the whole of time. All time has been future, and all time will be past. And in the process of going from future to past, all time passes through the present. So, here again, we have a remarkable analogy to the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead. I see that my time is almost gone for today. Be with me on our next broadcast as we continue this study. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. It's good to welcome you to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I'm bringing a series of messages that I call Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's again look at a verse from the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. This verse of Scripture from Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8 brings out clearly the eternal being of God, as well as the deity and the position in the Godhead of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who is in the present, who was in the past, and who is to come in the future. God's eternity of being is actually spoken of in his very name, which he gave to his chosen people Israel in the Old Testament. The sacred tetragrammaton, the name YHWH, which we often pronounce Jehovah, is a form of the Hebrew verb of being. It includes the concept of eternal being within itself, and it could be properly translated as who is, who was, and who is to come. In Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14, it's simply translated as, I am. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And it's the word that was spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 8 and verse 58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. The eternal existence of God is brought out over and over again by scriptures of both the Old and New Testaments. However, what I think is often overlooked is that passages such as Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8 also seem to call attention to an analogy that exists between the triune nature of God and the triune nature of the universal entity, time. Again, I think that it's most significant to realize that time consists of future time, present time, and past time. Each of these categories of time is quite distinct in itself, yet each is the whole of time each category of time is identical in essence that is each is exactly the same thing however each is distinctly different in subsistence that is it manifests itself in a different way the differences fall into the area of the interrelationships between the categories that is we might say that the differences are in the ministries and of course the Word of God tells us That this is essentially the nature of the three persons who eternally exist as the one God. Future time, present time, and past time are all quite distinct in meaning. Yet each is time and each is the whole of time. All time has been future and will be past. And in the process of future time becoming past time, all time passes through the present. We could say that the future is the invisible source of all time. Time from the source of the future is made visible and is experienced moment by moment in the present. Our perception of time, our consciousness of it, is only in the present. But nevertheless, future time is real, just as past time is real. Both future and past time have significance to our perception of present time. And it's impossible to imagine a present without a past or a future. This is just like trying to imagine a one-dimensional space. Without all three categories of time, future, present, and past, time could not exist at all. So the source of time is the invisible future. It then moves through present time into the realm of past or experienced time. Man is enabled to understand the present and even to a degree the future in terms of his memory of the past. But let me emphasize both our memories of past time and our anticipations of future time are conceived of only through our consciousness of present time. Again, these interrelationships of future, present, and past time are closely analogous to those of the three persons of the Godhead. The Father is the unseen source of all things, and we can see an analogy between future time and God the Father. From the Father proceeds God the Son, in whom God the Father is visibly revealed. From the Father and the Son proceeds God the Holy Spirit, who interprets and makes meaningful in actual experience both God the Son and God the Father. We can see that there is a direct analogy between the Son and the present, and between the Holy Spirit and the past as the inspired Apostle Paul writes for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead and now we come to the final one of the three entities of our universe matter or in more general terminology energy we have previously noted that the entity of space is embodied and revealed in matter And both are comprehended and manifested in terms of time now it should be obvious that matter is understood and comprehended in terms of the volume of space that it occupies and the increment of time for which it occupies that space matter of course is just a special form of energy and the term energy is really broader and more comprehensive than the term matter in addition to matter the term energy includes light heat sound radiation, mechanical motion, and so forth. It's more appropriate to use the term energy to describe this particular, this particular entity of the tri-universe. So I'll try to use the term energy instead of the term matter. Each and every manifestation of energy in the universe takes place in space and in time. Any such manifestation has a particular location in space and a particular duration in time. That is, each manifestation of energy, which we might call an event, has a beginning and an ending both in space and in time. Each and every event has spatial and temporal boundaries. Also of great significance is the fact that every manifestation of energy necessarily involves some form of motion. No matter what the form light heat sound or what have you all energy has velocity the very presence of energy is always necessary is always necessarily manifest in the form of motion or velocity energy is defined as the ability to do work and work is defined in the terms of motion if energy is present it will produce motion so we can say that first there's energy The invisible but powerful source that produces and manifests itself in motion motion is observed by velocity which is the passing through a given space in a given time and finally experienced in terms of the effect produced and here we see one way of viewing the Trinitarian nature of energy there is energy motion and effect or phenomena each are inseparably related to the other two and each is universally present wherever there's matter or any other form of energy. Matter is equivalent to energy. Energy produces motion, and motion produces phenomena. And again, we have a specific analogy to the three persons of the Godhead. The unseen source of motion and phenomena is energy. Both of the former proceed from the latter. So energy is analogous to God the Father, who's the invisible source from which proceeds the Son and the Holy Spirit. Motion is the entity of the Trinity that is detectable to the senses. It embodies and manifests energy. And as such, motion is analogous to God the Son, who visibly reveals the Father to us. And lastly, phenomena or effect proceeds from both energy and motion. And motion produced by energy is experienced in phenomena. So here we have an analogy to God the Holy Spirit. He proceeds from both the Father and the Son, and through Him we experience the reality of both the Father and the Son. I think that there's an even more fundamental way of understanding the triunity of the entity of matter or energy. I've earlier pointed out that every phenomenon associated with the entity of energy or matter has specific boundaries both in space and time. That is, every phenomenon has a beginning and an end in space, and a beginning and an end in time. We could call each and every incremental phenomenon an event. Under this definition of an event, we could place such varied things as a planet, a child's toy, a musical note, a flash of lightning, an explosion, or what have you. Each of these events occupies a certain part of space for a certain period of time. The duration in both space and time may be large, as in the case for the planet, or it may be small, as in the case for the flash of lightning. Notice particularly that every type of phenomena is included under our term event. The definition of event includes all physical phenomena, all mental phenomena, all biological phenomena, and all spiritual phenomena. A solar system, a mountain, a book, a person, a thought, or a prayer are all events all involve the entity of energy and all have a beginning and an end in space and time now although each event does have a specific beginning in space and time we should realize that events are not self generating in order for an event to occur in space and time there must be a cause the cause itself also has a cause and this goes on back to a chain of causes and events to the beginning of the creation And likewise, although we can say that each event has a specific ending in space and time, the energy that was that event is not destroyed. The result, or we might say the consequences of that event, continue to spread out through space and time, causing other events as long as this creation, our universe, remains. Therefore, each event is inseparably linked to its cause and to its consequence. The cause is the invisible source of the event, And the consequence is that which proceeds from both the cause and the event. And here we have the basic triunity that is such a remarkable analogy to the triunity of the God of creation. The Father is the unseen source, and he is visibly manifest in the Son, and both the Father and the Son are known and understood by the Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, cause, event, and consequence. Once again, the old clock on the wall says that our time is gone. Be, Be with me. Welcome once again to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's good to greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Today we'll conclude this series of messages on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's look at Luke's description of the scene of our Lord's baptism in the River Jordan. Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. As we bring to a close our study of the triune nature of the true and living God, I think that it's appropriate for us to consider for a moment the scene of our Lord's Baptism. In this one scene, the Trinitarian nature of the Godhead is clearly revealed. We have the manifest presence of all three persons of God as our Lord Jesus Christ is baptized by John in the River Jordan. God the Son is present in the flesh. God the Holy Spirit takes on the visible form of a dove as he descends upon the Son of God. And at the same time, the voice of the Unseen Father speaks from heaven. Thou art my beloved Son. In thee I find all my delight. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all are present. But also in this scene, all are inseparably related. The three persons are one true and living God. The tri-unity of God, pictured so clearly in this universe, this trinity of trinities that is God's creation, is in this scene clearly brought forth for all to see. During this series of broadcasts, I've gone into considerable detail in showing that in a, rem- in a most remarkable way our universe is a tri-universe. There is a basic tri-unity that pervades all nature and if we're at all observant we cannot escape an awareness of this fact. The universe as a whole is a space, energy, or matter, time continuum. Space is three-dimensional, length, width, and depth. Time is tripartite, future, present, and past, and energy, including matter, is ultimately tripartite also. In its broadest sense, it is cause, event, and consequence. These relationships are basic and obvious. Just as the Apostle Paul writes, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made once again let me emphasize that our universe is a trinity of trinities the universe as a whole is a space time energy or matter continuum space is three-dimensional length width and depth time is tripartite future present and past and matter or energy in a broad sense is cause effect and consequence or we can consider it also as energy motion and phenomena throughout god's greatest creation we see this recurring triune relationship of source manifestation and meaning these relationships are basic and obvious and although many of us may not often think of them in this analytical way they are nevertheless basically understood relationships of the creation the invisible things of the triune God are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made just as the inspired Apostle Paul says now certainly the things that I've brought out in this study do not prove that the creator of this universe is a triune God but the Bible God's written word clearly reveals God's triune nature and with the remarkable picture that God has given us in the creation we should certainly not stumble over God's written revelation it would seem that this really should be the natural way to think of the God of creation but nevertheless even in bible-believing fundamental christian groups the so-called doctrine of the trinity has been considered as a difficult doctrine certainly this doctrine has been a focal point of many errors throughout the 2000 year history of the christian church one error that dates back to the very earliest centuries and that crops up again and again is that the holy spirit is a mere influence and not a living person who is god i'm afraid that many sincere christians have a tendency to think of him in this way even though outwardly they voice the scriptural teaching that he is a divine person. Another common error is that the Lord Jesus Christ is regarded as inferior and subordinate to God the Father. By some, he is even regarded as a created being, and this position is a clear denial of the scriptural teaching that he is the eternal God. This, of course, is a denial of the person of the Lord who bought us, which Peter, in Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, calls a... Damnable heresy the denial of the full deity and of the eternal existence of our Lord Jesus Christ is a mark of nearly all the cultic religions of our day those which claim a link with Christianity but which deny most of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith and of course there is another error that regards the concept of the Trinity as simply different modes or manifestations of a single person who is God But again, God's written word condemns all of these concepts. Let's close this study with just one question. Is the teaching of the triunity of God important? This can be answered with another question. How else could one conceive of our redemption being accomplished apart from the existence of a triune God? It's pretty hard to conceive of God becoming a man, living a perfect life, denying or rather I should say dying as a perfect sacrifice for the sin of the world and being raised from the dead for our justification without a knowledge of God's triune nature all of the basic concepts of God's perfect plan of redemption are wrapped up in this doctrine one who rejects the so-called doctrine of the Trinity will also be found to reject the doctrine of substitutionary atonement and all the other concepts of salvation by God's grace alone. So the doctrine of the triunity of God is extremely important. The opening verses of the Gospel of John read as follows. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, And the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. The word, the Lagos, spoken of by John, is the Lord Jesus Christ. This identification is made clear in John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the word, the Lagos, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So it is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, the second person of the triune Godhead, of whom John speaks in these opening words of his inspired book. In the beginning was the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. And the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, was with God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John's inspired words forever confirm the deity and the eternal existence of that one who walked the earth for some 33 years as Jesus of Nazareth. When the universe had its beginning, God the Son already was. It's the same beginning mentioned by Moses in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 that John has in view here. The opening verse of the Bible contains the words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And the opening verse of John's Gospel assures us that at the time that all created things had their beginning, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, already was, already existed. He, as the eternal God, existed in eternity past. In the beginning was, already existed, the Word. But the Word was not alone in the Godhead, and the Word was with God. The one who was born into the world, as that little babe in Bethlehem, was not alone in eternity past. He was with God. The first part of John chapter 1 and verse 1 assures the reader that the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, already existed prior to the time when all created things were created. This in itself is an attribute of deity. God the Son is not a created being. But the second part of the verse also assures the reader that this eternally existing one experienced fellowship in the Godhead even before the time of the creation, and the Word was with God. Other persons of the eternal Godhead were also present in eternity past, and the living Word experienced fellowship with them. But lest the reader might think that the Eternal Word was in any way inferior or subordinate to the other persons of the Godhead, John ends the first verse of his Gospel with the words, And the Word was God. The Living Word, our Lord Jesus Christ, was fully God, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He was and is fully God. His unchangeableness as God the Son. Is also assured by John's words the same was in the beginning with God even in the incarnation the second person of the Godhead was unchanged his eternal deity remained the same both before and after the human nature was added at the time of the incarnation the same person of God who walked the earth as man was the God who in eternity past enjoyed fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit not only that but God the Son The very one who went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin was the active creator of the universe all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made father son and holy spirit all are eternally one omnipotent omniscient god
0: been listening to the Bible stands an independent faith ministry conducted as a worldwide radio missionary outreach by Bible expositor Wayne Carver this program is dedicated to the upholding of the doctrines of the full verbal inspiration the total inerrancy and the absolute authority of the Holy Bible the messages presented each day are available on cassette tape to those who support this ministry with their tax-deductible gifts and offerings The Bible Stands is totally dependent upon the contributions of our radio listeners for its continuance on your station. You are invited to send your gifts and offerings, your request for cassette tapes, and your Bible questions to Wayne Carver in care of the Bible Stands radio broadcast. The Bible Stands is a faith ministry totally dependent upon the financial support of God's people for its continuing outreach. The program is sponsored by the Bible Stands radio Broadcast. 6510 Spring Rose, San Antonio, Texas 78249